You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Host Jonathan Capehart sits down with Washington Post correspondents and columnists to discuss the crisis in Afghanistan and the Biden administration's plan to get booster shots to Americans by next month. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. President Biden is dealing with the biggest foreign policy crisis of his presidency with the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan. White House reporter Annie Linsky was one of the three Post reporters who chronicled the White House response to the fall of Kabul, and she joins me now. Annie, welcome back to First Look. Hi, it's great to be here. So, Annie, what went wrong? Well, I mean, if if you're Joe Biden right now, you're saying um, this is the way it was always going to go. I mean, I think that's a, a lonely position for him to take, but that's what he said this week um, in his interview with George Stephanopoulos when he suggested that there was no way to get out of this um, this war without the kind of chaos, the scenes of chaos that we, we saw. Um, you know, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, um, you know, has suggested that that um, there would be a quote unquote hot wash is what he called it, uh, a review of all of the decisions made in the days and hours before um, the fall of Kabul to actually look a little more closely at that at that um, question. But I mean, I, I think that what we saw here, you know, really starting Sunday night into Monday was just such a um, a different kind of vision than we're used to with the United States military and with U.S. Um, intervention abroad, where it was just a sort of spectacular, chaotic scene um, that that was heartbreaking for many of the people who have spent you know two decades working on this country. Um, and it does um, threaten to change the way America is seen in the world, which is something that Joe Biden had had promised um, to shore up, and and rather than shoring it up. This moment would appear to, um, you know, put cracks, in, further cracks in that view. You know, you reported in the story that the Pentagon had run through exercises and scenarios and all sorts of things in preparation for the pullout. So I, I think a lot of Americans are asking, if you did all that, why weren't they prepared for the real-time unraveling security situation in Afghanistan? Well, I mean, to me, that was one of the more striking um, kind of bits of information that came out of the first few, you know, days and hours after this chaotic scene. Um, I was on a call with senior senior administration officials, um, and you know, we and other post reporters on this call were saying, "Look, you know, how how did it? How were you caught so unprepared for this?" And the response was, "Look, we had done what they call a tabletop exercise." on August 6th, so that's not not that long ago. And they were trying to suggest that one of the even worst case scenarios would have been if they had had to fight their way into the embassy in Kabul um, to rescue uh, embassy workers and then fight their way out. And that to them was going to be the worst case scenario, one that they were preparing for. But I think it's a little difficult you know, to use that and to hold that up as like, look, this is not so bad. You know, it's suggestive that like, you can always come up with a worse scenario than what happened. I, I mean, things can always go worse. 
Um, and, and so that, that it just seemed to me to be a bit of a red herring to say like, well, look, we prepared for one thing that would have been even even more grave. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just want to remind our listeners, our, our viewers here, <laughs> that this embassy in Kabul is an $800 million complex that was built five years ago. So just to talk about the investment that has been made by United States taxpayers in, in this country, mm-hmm. that's just just one example. Um, but it, there are also broader questions raised about Biden's credibility. I mean, he, in April, made an agreement with the Afghan um, uh, with the Afghan government to say that he was going to express confidence publicly in this government and not do a withdrawal, um, but on the condition that the Afghan government did several things. The Afghan government was supposed to, you know, in Biden's telling, bring the country together, um, and show that they had brought this this country together. And that's a fairly big ask. But when the Afghan government didn't do that, I'm not sure why the United States felt that it had to hold up to its end of the bargain, which is one of the you know reporting targets that that we have. Is you know if the Afghan government's clearly not doing what they you know said they would do, why is it that the United States felt we had to continue to do um, you know to to perpetuate this mm-hmm. sense of confidence that clearly we did not have. You know, the follow-up question I had to that, I'm going to save for the opinion, folks. I'm not going to put you on the spot with that. But um, in terms of the the exercises and the scenarios and being caught completely flat-footed, the Wall Street Journal had a story late yesterday about a cable that was sent from the embassy staff in Kabul on the State Department's dissent channel sent to Secretary Blinken, among other um, officials at the State Department. The State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, acknowledges the fact that the Secretary of State not only saw it, but if if memory serves, um, responded to it. So how can the administration continue to say, we had no idea, we were completely caught off guard when you had the people on the ground there telling them days before, I don't remember the timing of when that cable went out, but far in advance of the chaos that we saw a week ago. I mean, I will say, somewhat to Biden's credit, he's not really saying that he was caught off guard. I mean, he was saying this Mm. is what he thought would happen. What is unfortunate is that he made that cold calculation. Um, You know, you... You know, it, it was. It has been stunning to hear these interviews come out over the last few days, where he said, "Yeah, um, this is the intelligence. This was an outcome that we thought could happen, and we just sort of went ahead anyway." Um, and and so I think you know we're kind of conditioned for when you see this kind of chaos for our leaders to say, "Oh no, this is not what we wanted to have happen." But mm-hmm. with Biden acknowledging that this was. This was one of the outcomes that they were okay with. Um, you know, it, it does sort of change that dynamic a little bit, and it's a subtle thing, but it does it does reveal that this is a cost that Biden baked into the decision that he made, and I think that will also be the topic of hearings, you know, in the in the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. Annie, let me get you on one more one more question. We're not going to be able to get to to boosters, but I just want to stick to Afghanistan and and one other thing. A poll came out. Um, I believe it was from the AP. Um, yes, from the AP. More than six in 10 Americans say Afga- the Afghanistan war was not worth fighting. So to my mind, I'm just wondering, this puts the president squarely in line with the American people, doesn't it? I mean, 
this is part of the political calculation on the part of the president and the White House, isn't it? Sure. I, I mean, I think what the president is hoping is that this moment is, is largely forgotten or overlooked by the American people. And the sort of he's remembered for the, the larger sort of um, uh, sort of accomplishment from his perspective of ending the war in Afghanistan, which has been become over time, as you point out from the poll, it has become quite popular with the, with the American people. I mean, even, you know, surveys of the military show there's a sense that We've been there for 20 years. It's time to go. But I, and I think the White House has been trying to to kind of conflate the popularity for the ending the war and then say, well, this is the only way we could have ended it. So, yes, it'll be a little messy. That's unfortunate. But I said I was going to get out of this and I did. And, you know, that's that is the White House position. And that's, you know, that's why they're not really disputing these intelligence reports or that they saw these intelligence reports that the the country could fall quickly. Um, you know, there is some, you know, you can talk, the military has some different views on that question. But right. at the end of the day, the Biden administration is saying, yeah, we did see that this would be messy, but that was the price for doing this very popular thing that we ran on doing. All right, Annie, we are out of time. I'm going to pick up the conversation about Afghanistan and talk about the whole the booster announcement that came this week with our opinionated panel in a minute. Annie Linsky, White House reporter for The Washington Post, thank you for coming back to First Look. Thank you. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues Catherine Rampell and Megan McArdle. Welcome back to First Look. Thanks, Thanks Jonathan. All right, so let's pick up where um, Annie left off. Uh, you both have written about uh, Afghanistan and, and what happened this week. Megan, I'll start with you. You write that, the, that uh, President Biden and his defenders say that the horror we are seeing play out in Afghanistan right now was always inevitable. Actually, a point that Annie was making a moment ago. You also say that argument uh, has, quote, some undeniable truth to it. Talk more about that. Look, I think, you know, we went in there 20 years ago hoping that we could build a, a liberal democracy. And I think that the kind of fundamental illusion that, that every nation has a modern liberal democracy just waiting inside it uh, for America to let it out has been kind of decisively refuted by both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, democracy building uh, is a process of decades or centuries. It does not happen on a military timetable. Um, and I think that we just overestimated the, the cost of going in and underestimated the difficulty of actually doing good rather than harm. Um, that said, I also think that people who make that kind of cultural slash human nature inevitability argument, which has a lot going for it, um, then don't apply it to America. If you look back 20 years ago, I was in New York City when, when the towers came down. Uh, I, I lost people I knew there. Um, and I think 90% of America wanted to invade Afghanistan. There was never any chance that we weren't going to. And at the point where we had, I think that, you know, America's kind of cultural preoccupations almost guaranteed that we would end up going and expanding the brief beyond just making a military strike that was going to, you know, punish the Taliban for sheltering Al Qaeda. And that then having done that, that it was going to be hard to get out. We were going to end up overcommitted because we had chosen a mission 
um, that it's very hard to say, okay, well, either we succeeded or that didn't work. There's always more you could do, more you could try. And that's how we ended up there for 20 years. And meanwhile, Catherine, you and your column, you write that for most of the two, two decades that the United States has been in Afghanistan, we have failed our Afghan allies and the Biden White House dragged its feet on an evacuation plan. At this point, do you think the Biden administration will succeed in getting everyone out by its self-imposed August 31st deadline? Well, they haven't even committed, so far as I know, to getting all of our Afghan allies out. Biden, in his interview earlier this week, committed to getting all American citizens out, which is a different population. I mean, as I wrote in that piece, for most of the time we have been in Afghanistan, we have failed the interpreters who helped our military and the other Afghans who assisted the U.S. government, whom we promised to keep safe, right? These are people who have who put their lives on the ri at risk to help the U.S. government um, and who now have a target on their back, whose families have a target on their back because they are seen as collaborators by the Taliban. Um, and many of whom have been killed, at least 300 have been killed in the past several years that we know of. We had promised to get them over here through a special immigrant visa system, um, very similar to one that we created for uh, our allies who helped us in Iraq as well. And this system has been broken basically since its inception. It takes a really, really long time. It takes years for people to get through this clearance process, even though most of them already have security clearances as a condition of working with the US government over in Afghanistan. Um, but it, the, the system has been broken for a very, very long time. You know, for, for every, through every administration that has been in charge during this war, but the problem became much more urgent as soon as it became clear that we were withdrawing our military from Afghanistan, right? What's going to happen to uh, what was then a backlog of about 20,000 people uh, who, had, who had applied through this system set up to help them? Again, we promised to help them, plus there are maybe 50,000 um, direct family members, you know, spouses and children. Uh, what was going to happen to them once the US military left? And refugee groups, veterans groups had been um, pleading with the Biden administration to develop a plan, for example, along the lines of what we did after the fall of Saigon, which is where we, we had, there were a lot of allies, a lot of, a lot of refugees who didn't have their paperwork yet in order, who were airlifted to Guam, um, an isolated place in the middle of the Pacific, a controlled environment out of harm's way, where they were processed there. They finished the screening system, the screening process, before they were ultimately relocated to the United States. We did the same thing, excuse me, we did the same thing actually um, uh, for a, a population that was fleeing Saddam Hussein in the 90s. We brought them to Guam. So this was an option that was proposed and the Biden administration dragged its feet. Um, and it's, it's unclear why, uh, you know, was it just incompetence, disorganization? Biden had said these people didn't wanna leave, which is sort of laughable given the backlog of applications. Uh, in my own reporting and reporting of colleagues on the news side of the Post and at other publications, it appears that a major factor here was political cowardice, that basically the Biden White House was wary of the nativist backlash that might result if a large number of Afghans were brought to U.S. soil. Uh, they, they didn't want the Fox News coverage about, you know, the, the Afghan invasion here. Of course, they got it anyway, right? I mean, this happened anyway, even though he dragged his feet and even though these people are stranded. Um, 
So it, I don't know. It's it's very upsetting to me, actually, that we mm-hmm. let the, these sort of political calculations get in the way of keeping our promises and, and, and keeping these people safe, particularly since it didn't work out, right? <laughs> I mean, no matter what right. Biden does, he's going to be accused of open borders. So just do right. the right thing. Right. And, and actually, to that point, and you anticipated a question I was going to ask you, Catherine, so you've actually saved me a little time by talking about the sort of the, the, the cowering in, in, the, in fear of what the folks on Fox News was saying. But Megan, within the Republican Party, there seems to be a split. There's the um, faction, most notably led by Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, who, you know, is saying we should care for our a- Afghan allies and you know, let's let's protect them, let's bring them. And then you've got the more native nativist, okay, I'll bluntly say it, racist wing uh, on the far right that is basically spouting the quote unquote white replacement theory as a reason um, for why Biden is letting all of these people into the country. Um, how is the, the fracture within the party going to play out? Look, I think that this goes to deeper fractures within the party. If you had asked me 10 years ago uh, how many conservatives there would be saying that we shouldn't let the allies in who helped translate for us, who helped, you know, um, who helped do all sorts of things, who worked for us in, in, in many capacities, if you had said to me there would be a lot of conservatives who were against that, I mean, this is the movement that was obsessed with national honor, right? Um, I would have said that there would be none. <laughs> probably, or very few. And that's not how it's played out. And I think that that goes to the way that Trump has politicized things. You see this with the vaccines and the masks. We're at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I was watching conservatives complain that the, the left-wing public policy experts were downplaying masks. And then Trump refused to wear one. And they had to justify that decision. And so they decided masks didn't work. And then they committed to that emotionally and they couldn't back down off of it. Um, And I think that you're seeing this play out in red states now where they have overcommitted to the pandemic's no big deal and are having real difficulty moving off that politically even as people are dying in their hospitals. And so I think that we, we were seeing a very similar pattern here, which is that Trump politicized immigration, not even in a way where in general we want lower levels of immigration. I think that is a quite defensible um, point of view. It's not my point of view, but I, I don't think you have to be racist to think that we should let fewer people in. Um, but I do think that, that now there's a kind of reflexive, emotional, I, can't, I must die on this hill and every hill where I am opposed to the left. And so when it conflicted with issues like America has obligations, we have national honor to uphold. Um, we don't want to withdraw in chaos and leave our allies to be slaughtered well, we're now so dug in on immigration that we can't see past it at all. And I think that that is playing out in the party on this, as with so many other issues. You know, I I mean, I I hear you when you say that, you know, you can um, be for a policy of limiting immigration without being racist. Unfortunately, you have folks on, on Fox News, Tucker Carlson among them, basically saying flat out, out loud, that to allow uh, Afghan, our Afghan allies and Afghan re- refugees to come to this country is part of a Democratic Party diabolical plot to erase white people from the country. Um, we need to be mindful of what's being said um, on the number one cable network in the nation. But you had a nice segue there, Megan, from Afghanistan to the pandemic, which I thought was very artful. And so I'm gonna come to you um, to kick off this part of the conversation 
because we got the announcement that booster shots are coming in September. San Francisco joined New York in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, mandating proof of vaccination um, to take part in indoor activities. Um, one, what's your take on vaccine mandates? And do you think that more big cities will follow the lead of New York and San Francisco? Look, I'm basically a libertarian, but I have always made certain exceptions for public health because in the same way that you are not allowed to punch me, I don't think that you have a civil right to expose me to a potentially deadly disease. And so I think there is ample constitutional precedent uh, for mandatory vaccination. I think it is well within the rights of governments to do it. I think there are prudential questions of does this actually advance the public health? Is the cost of, is the danger of COVID worth forcing people to get vaccinated? Um, and I think that you can debate those issues, but you know, on principle, I think it's fine. And I think when we look at Delta, when we look at the, the death toll, and when we look at the fact that we're having breakthrough infections, that people in nursing homes are vulnerable, um, certainly I think there is, is reason for a limited policy at the very minimum of, of requiring them, for example, in nursing home workers. But I actually think there is an argument for a broader vaccine mandate, which is just that um, you know, this, as long as this disease keeps circulating and keeps infecting people and keeps having lengthy infections, that's more opportunities for it to evolve new ways to overcome our vaccine defenses. Um, and I, I think, too, people kind of forget. They say, well, what about India? What about all of these larger countries where it is going to circulate? And that's absolutely true. It is a risk. The, Amer the American public and every other developed nation should be doing more than we are to provide vaccines abroad, to, to boost manufacturing, to tell, you know, to tell companies, make all the doses you can as fast as you can, build new factories, we'll pay, it's fine, it's worth it. And I think that that is both on human humanitarian and just purely selfish self-interest grounds, I think that is absolutely warranted and the best policy. But I think, you know, people forget Western countries, developed countries, have a lot of immunosuppressed people that you don't find in those developing nations. We have transplant patients and cancer patients and people with autoimmune diseases and, and so on and so forth. We have a lot more old people. And all of those people, an immunosuppressed patient is a place where the virus can establish a really lengthy uh, infection, which gives it a lot of time to figure out ways around our defenses. And because those people aren't mounting the, the robust vaccine immune response that we want, it's almost the worst possible world because it has experience with vaccine-induced antibodies, but not enough of them to actually kill yeah. it. So in fact, it is really important that we get all Americans vaccinated for the purpose of fighting back these variants and making sure that this is not a long-term problem where every nine months we're coming up with a new deadly variant we have to contend with. Mm -hmm. And Catherine, I would love to get your thoughts on, on, on what Megan said, but also the president has called on the education department, uh, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, to treat masks in schools as a, quote, civil rights issue and crack down on governors who are seeking to ban mask mandates in schools, i.e. Governor Abbott of Texas, Governor DeSantis of Florida. What do you think of, of, about that approach? Um, about the idea of taking a civil rights approach? Look, right. I, 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 yeah, I, I, th I agree with Megan that the strongest case for any form of government intervention is when there are ex externalities involved, when one person's behavior affects somebody else negatively, whether it's an infectious disease, whether it's uh, polluting a river, um, you know, 
uh, cars it, it spewing um, pollution into the air, et cetera. So this is the strongest case we have, the strongest set of circumstances we can come up with. You know, an infectious disease literally hurting other people. Um, that is the that is the most compelling case for government intervention, whatever it looks like. I mean, I think it's interesting uh, the way that these uh, these red state governors have been banning mask wearing. You know, I went to public school in Florida. There, they had no qualms about uh, regulating what I could wear, and my spaghetti straps had to be three finger widths or something, and and my shorts That's had to precise. be a certain length. <laughs> Pardon? That's precise. Very three, precise. Three. Why? Why? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there were plenty of other um, children of the '90s who had similar regulations, but in any event, uh, you know, why can't they similarly regulate um, as part of a dress code? As in fact, one school district in Texas has decided to do. I, I believe the school district that includes Texas, excuse me, that includes Dallas. Why can't they say this is part of the dress code? Right. So there are other there are other tools that um, you know and precedents at the very least for, uh, you know, for, for guiding how students dress. And then on the civil rights issue, I mean, if you are an immunosuppressed child, if you are a child who is not able to get vaccinated as children under age 12 are not, um, yes, th this puts your life at risk. This, this puts your ability to attend school safely at risk. And I think we should be using every tool in our arsenal to try to keep these kids safe and physically in school. Uh, a number of the states that have banned uh, the ability to require masks have ha have already had major shutdowns of their school systems, mm -hmm. essentially, because kids are having to quarantine. Uh, there was some district in Tennessee that I read this morning where they had, again, fought mask wearing, and they're having to take the equivalent of a snow day or an inclement weather day, uh, I believe today or, or yesterday, because mm -hmm. too many staff members are sick, too many children are sick. And I, again, I think it is vitally important uh, for these children to be physically in the classroom. We have abundant data at this point that suggests that um, remote learning, uh, how, however much effort has been put into it, is a very poor substitute for in-person mm -hmm. learning. Kids are falling behind on reading and right. math and other academic skills. We need to keep them in school and we need to make sure that they are, they are healthy in school. We should be moving mountains. Right. You know, to make sure that they can continue to stay safe and learning at the same time. Right, and also to give their parents a mental health break after the last year. Real quick, um, we've got about a minute left, but I want to bring it back to Afghanistan because I forgot to mention the president's going to be speaking about um, about all of this today, um, early this after early this afternoon. Um, real quickly, Megan, then Catherine, what do you what do you hope to hear from the president? Twenty seconds or less. <laughs> I hope to hear that things are going to go better in the future than they are in the present, because I think that, you know, um, the, the Democrats are kind of downplaying just how badly this has gone. But I think it really has been a disaster. We've still got Americans trapped there. We've still mm -hmm. got a ton of allies trapped there. And I need to hear that he has a plan not just for, well, we're going to really try to get the Americans out, but that there is a real plan for it and that there is a real plan to deal with all of the people who helped us and who we are now leaving and, behind. And Catherine? Uh, basically the same thing. I want to hear him take ownership of um, the problems that we've had so far, present a strategy for getting not just U.S. citizens out, but also our allies, many of whom, um, you know, we, if we give them visas, so what if they can't actually get out of the country, can't get to the airport for that matter. 
I really like mm -hmm. to hear more um, detailed information about what our plan is to help these people who helped us. And we're going to find out later this afternoon what the president has to say about Afghanistan. Catherine Rampell, Megan McArdle, we are out of time as always. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in. Go to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about the programming in store for next week. As always, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for watching The Washington Post Live, Washington Post's First Look. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.